Hello, everyone, um, and thank Hello. you for joining us on Shindig, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Abigail Majola. And I'm Toby Moffat. Nice to have you. November 4th is a show that uh, started some months ago, and it's aimed at looking at the day after the election and getting everyone to think about what their citizen responsibilities are as we move forward, hopefully, from this president and this administration. We've looked at climate and what we should do to undo the damage and move forward. We looked at immigration. We've looked at uh, racial uh, injustice and economic injustice, injustice, immigration, and, and why we need a, a broad-based immigration reform. And so Abby's going to tell you about this show. So today we are reimagining the future of education, just given our new normal um, and the challenges we're facing um, with COVID-19 and this ongoing pandemic. Um, we're gonna ask questions like, what achievement gaps are, is COVID exacerbating? What requirements should schools meet to ensure that students, faculty and staff are safe before reopening? Um, if the future of learning is virtual, what can governments, universities and the private sector do to ensure equal access to education? And today our, we have four guests. Our first one is a public school teacher from Reynolds High School in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I had the honor during the 2016 presidential campaign when I was uh, working on the helping Hillary and the ticket in North Carolina to visit Chris Wiley's classroom and to see what a great teacher he is. And I've wondered ever since what it must be like for him during the lockdown, because it seemed to me in being in his classroom, so much of what he was doing to inspire and educate those students was really important to be done in person. So we're going to hear from, from Chris now. Chris, nice to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Toby. Glad to be here. So from what I understand, in your area, or whether it's the county or the area, relatively speaking, you're a bit better off than a lot of other places in the country where students are uh, not on the web, don't have computers. Now, obviously, you have a lot of students who are in those categories, but apparently the school system and the, and the local government has done something about it. But even with that, even with laptops being given out, even with hotspots, what challenges have you faced? Well, Toby, you're right. Uh, our district is fortunate in that we've had um, devices, uh, close to a one-to-one uh, -one ratio with devices. And as soon as the lockdown started, as soon as the move to remote was made, uh, we got those devices out of the schools and in the kids' hands. Uh, which was a great sort of a, a first step. Uh, the next was access, uh, so the hotspots get there. Um, but what we're finding, and this is absolutely um, predictable and lamentable, I think, um, is that the same uh, inequalities that were there in the, the classroom are showing up as we try to engage those students online. So some students, because of socioeconomic uh, status, uh, maybe they've got to work, uh, so synchronous learning doesn't exactly fall into, into place. Uh, for some, they've got to be uh, the caretaker for younger siblings uh, because mom and dad have to go to work. They're what they call a, you know, those essential workers. Um, but overwhelmingly, so are, are some of these are some of these young people reluctant to turn on that camera? Uh, they are. They are. There's um, the, the school I teach that has a wide range of socioeconomic uh, sort of status at play. Um, some students are maybe embarrassed, but others, quite honestly, they have, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say so in private, but uh, 
They may have younger brothers or sisters who climb on their lap where they may have to, uh, you know, attend to a, a crying baby and they don't like to have the microphones. They don't, you can hear from time to time when the microphones come on or when the, the video does come on that there's just a lot of uh, traffic as the household is managed. Um, you, you heard what I said about uh, being in your classroom and how impressive it was. What's missing that you, that you did in person? I think the, the human element of teaching, um, which is what makes all the difference, uh, being able to connect with students, um, whether it's, you know, even just a you know, pat on the shoulder or just making eye contact, just, 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 just being able to read the room better, um, just being able to use body language and tone of voice and all, all of that to just connect with a student. It's all of the non-teaching moments. So you pass them in the hallway and you can let them know hey, uh, I, I heard this was going on. I saw this was going on. Is everything all right? You know, let's put civics on hold and let me be a human being for a second. Is everything all right? Um, it was a little harder to do, um, you know, with with a Zoom meeting. Uh, but if the sincerity is there, I mean, you try like you can to, to, to bridge that gap. Abby, question or? Yeah, so I'm wondering too, um, as... So it seems like the COVID-19 pandemic is extending, right? Um, you know, I think in March, we thought this would be two weeks and then a month, then it has now extended to six months um, with no end in sight. And so I'm wondering um, if there are any discussions, um, you know, at your school about how do we continue this way, right? Um, and what are the tools that our students will need? What are the tools that teachers will need as well, right? Um, I think we're seeing a lot of um, burnout in lots of different industries because of what's happening. And so um, how are you all taking care of both of the students um, and also, you know, thinking ahead? Well, a lot of those, well, I'll say all of those decisions are generally made at the district level and that mm -hmm. just comes down from the state. Um, our plan right now is to phase in the youngest learners. So I think it's um, pre-K through second grade first and kind of keep an eye on the numbers um, and uh, sort of bring in the next cohort from there. Um, it is a little concerning to think that, um, you know, the constant in any of these situations, whether kids are on and off or, you know, different cohorts, that the teacher is the constant in that situation. Um, a lot of talk has been made about parents having the option not so much talk about teachers having the option uh, to come in or not um, and putting those, you know, student choice and the parent choice vis-a-vis -vis teacher choice or teacher safety. There has, you know, at times we felt, you know, and I think this is everywhere in the country, but we felt as something of an afterthought um, in our role as uh, public servants. Um, so there are some assurances I think we'd like, but I, I I think for the students, really, it's a matter of identifying exactly where the support needs to be. Uh, that's mm -hmm. our English language learners, that's our um, EC, or we call exceptional children, that's the occupational course of study, the students who need it most, uh, the youngest grades, and making sure that there are um, classified um, you know, staff members who, who are also on hand with the teachers to, to support the students uh, in a way that one teacher just simply can't. Mm -hmm. What about the, the, Abby's gonna to move to our next guest uh, shortly, but what about the uh, parent-teacher relationship? How, how has your relations with, with parents changed? Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh, in March, uh, when students were home with their parents, um, there was an outpouring of love, it felt like, from parents to say, I didn't realize your job was so hard, and, and, and thank you, and teachers have a tough job, and there was a lot of appreciation. Um, oddly, as this has dragged into the fall, 
Uh, and we're all still plugging away and doing our best, but um, it felt early on like parents were sort of like, uh, you know, your job is to take, you know, to, to, to free me up so I can work, is to free me up. So, you know, and again, it sort of fell back to that default of uh, teachers as, uh, I don't want to say babysitters, but just, uh, you know, keeping an eye on the kids to allow the rest of the society and economy to sort of flow. But. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, thank you. We clock in every day, so. There's that. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris, um, and we wish you best of luck. Um, I am going to remind the audience that um, if you have any questions, you can submit them by clicking the question mark on your screen, or you can raise your hand if you'd like to come to the stage um, and ask a live question. So our next two guests are um, Jennifer Richwine and um, Professor Richard Williams. Jennifer is the executive director of Wake Forest um, University's Wake in Washington program. Um, and Professor Williams teaches sociology at Notre Dame. Um, welcome to you both. Thank you, for, thank, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So um, Jennifer, you know, as we're digging in about um, how schools and universities have responded to COVID um, in an effort to um, address gaps and, um, you know, whether these approaches have worked, um, it's, I know that Wake Forest is um, currently in the midst of a, a hybrid um, semester on campus. And so I wanted to hear a little bit more about um, the types of challenges that you all are experiencing um, and how students have reacted to, you know, the university's communications around um, risk and cases that are happening on campus. Sure, and I can speak most, I can speak more about the Wake Washington program here in DC than on campus, but I will say everything that we do is in tandem. So everything that we've done with the Wake Washington program has been very much in tandem with what's happening on campus. So we've done a little bit of a hybrid here in DC, much like there is on campus. Um, and we follow all the same guidelines that the university is. We have a dashboard like a lot of schools do that sort of show how many cases we have. We're doing random testing of all of our students on campus um, and have been, trying to make sure that um, we keep everyone safe. So we had to think about those kinds of things when we were um, considering whether or not we could do something here in Washington, DC. Typically students come um, here for the semester and they do internships four days a week and classes in the evenings. Um, we only have five students here this semester. Typically it's more like 20. Mm -hmm. um, so they are doing mostly virtual internships. One student is um, doing an in-person internship at the Pentagon, but our professor has actually stayed on campus. So while we usually have a resident professor with five students, we decided that that professor would stay back on campus so um, she could teach in person with students there and then our students do it virtually. But one of the things that we had to make sure we could provide is that these students here in DC could be safe. And so we have um, a, a um, a partnership with a medical group here in DC where they can get, um, they can do virtual um, healthcare with them and telehealth and they can get tested anytime they need to. And we also made sure that we could provide some of the same services they do on campus with mental health and counseling and things like that. So that those are the things we really wanted to make sure is that we had, could provide a safe environment, but also provide a really good experience in DC. What, what Jennifer, what do you worry most about? That somebody tests positive and the whole thing gets shut down or what? Um, here in DC? Yeah. On campus. Well, here we have one of the things we had to do is make sure we had a very quick way to isolate someone if they did test positive. So we have a very quick way to isolate students um, so that they're hopefully um, the other students wouldn't be affected. But if we need to quarantine everybody separately, we can do that in a really quick way. So that was one of the things we had to do. So we actually don't feel like 
um, if we had a case that we would have to shut this down. Good. Abby? So I want to um, bring Professor Williams in as well. Um, so the Notre Dame University president um, wrote an op-ed a little while back about why the university would open, um, framing it in terms of um, morality versus science. Um, he said, you know, educating the young people um, who are the future leaders of our society is worth risking a good deal. Um, and so Professor Williams, I'd, I want to ask how this has worked out for Notre Dame so far. Um, you know what, and what happened to the students who couldn't return um, because of COVID concerns? Yeah, it. Um, well, just to quote exactly what Jenkins said, uh, we are in our society regularly willing to take on ourselves or impose on other risks, even lethal risks, for the good of society. We send off young men, men and women to war to defend the security of our nation, knowing that many will not return. We applaud medical professionals who risk their health to provide care to the sick and suffering. Uh, I, I can't speak for everybody, but my initial reaction was kind of like terror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're heading off to college. I, I did not realize that we were all going, going to risk our lives or something. Right. Um, but but that language has uh, played uh, well with some people, uh, did not play uh, well with others. But this this notion that we're off to a great war, uh, it it has not it played well with some people, but not others. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as how it went, um, well, we were here. Let's see, in classes for about eight day on the you know, on the seventh day of classes, everything shut down or rather everything went online, okay? Mm. We had uh, 147 cases after just barely over a week. And we're not, not that big of a university. Mm -hmm. And the numbers just kept on growing, okay? Now we actually crossed the 700 mark the other day, but the rate has been much slower, okay? And that's why they, they feel uh, better. Yeah. But, but certainly Notre Dame just got off to a... Uh, a terrible start, and uh, the, they they refer to it as missteps. Uh, I, I think it's a little more than that. Uh, how, prof professor, how much how much of that was? I'm sorry to interrupt. How, how much of that was uh, mm. externally driven by what was going on nationally and what the federal government was saying? Well, I. I I can tell you this, we did uh, testing of everybody before they came in, some like 12,000 tests, uh, only 33 positives. And Notre Dame hailed that as a sign, well, we're, our students have been so well behaved, everybody's been taking it seriously. We come back and a week into classes, we've got 147 and then it goes up to 700. Um, so certainly, you know, this is another argument. Should we have reopened at all? Many universities did not. But uh, we were certainly not in the clear, either locally or nationwide, when Notre Dame resumed. I think the original idea was that, okay, this is all going to calm down during the summer. By August 10, the nation will be in pretty good uh, shape. 
and we'll start classes early so that by the end of the semester, we'll avoid the big uh, late season surge that people thought we might have. Well, the problem is that the first wave never died now. Um, yeah. You know, we, we were over 200,000 cases now. And originally people thought, hey, well, you know, come, come May, June, July. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think anybody anticipated that every state practically is going to drop large numbers of restrictions and declare victory. I mean, a lot of places mm -hmm. basically declared victory when we were far from victory. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at the same time, like on August 6th, Johns, we bragged about how we had been consulting with Johns Hopkins. On August 6th, Johns Hopkins said it was going all online. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Johns Hopkins, they know something about medicine. They know <laughs> something about public health. And I actually wrote a note to the provost that day and said, look, it's not too late to back out of this. But several schools, several top schools, Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton, they were all doing something other than fully reopening. Uh, but Notre Dame and several other schools uh, stuck with the fully reopening approach. Uh, the, the national situation did not help, but I don't think we were showing good judgment either. Interesting. Mm. Uh, so, we want to bring our our, uh, our next guest in uh, uh, shortly, but let me just leave you with a question and then we can come back to it. Uh, what's the silver lining here? Uh, Jennifer, think about that. And uh, Professor Williams, are we going to produce... Uh, more better citizens out of this with these young people more conscientious uh are they going to be more uh, attentive to paying attention to science or uh are, is there no silver silver lining so why don't we bring uh um, our next uh, guest who's professor amir uh, fleischman from uh, uh university of michigan uh and and, and with the uh, leader in the uh, uh graduate uh employees organization which is a, which is a union they've been very very concerned about public safety and not entirely happy with uh, the safety that's been uh, provided is that a, is that a fair characterization professor uh, that may even be an understatement um, yeah so last week and uh, I guess the week and a half prior um, graduate students at the University of Michigan were on strike over the university's uh, reopening plans, um, calling for more robust testing, the unconditional option for graduate student workers to teach remotely, uh, and for some additional support for international students and parents and caregivers, as well as a series of anti-policing demands that we saw as incredibly important in the context both of the pandemic itself and the uprisings for racial justice uh, occurring across this country this summer. So Amir, um, can you tell us a little bit about what a safe and just pandemic response looks like? So that was one of the demands, right, of the strike. Um, you know, like, does that include diverting funds from one place to another? Um, does it look like not reopening? Does it look like, you know, all virtual classes? Like, what does that really look like? Yeah, so I, that's a term that we sort of use to encapsulate all the different aspects of our demands. Um, I think it has a few different parts. So uh, GEO, my union, doesn't have a position on whether there should be in-person learning. But if there is, it needs to be done safely. 
so that's one of the things we were demanding that the university you know, have a sufficient testing policy that in-person learning is possible. Um, but we also want to make sure that all the different groups on campus who are differently affected by the pandemic uh, are treated fairly by the university and allowed, uh, or the conditions are created so that they can thrive uh, in the campus when it's reopened. Um, so I mentioned uh, parents and caregivers as one uh, group who we were advocating for. Um, so the University of Michigan's in Ann Arbor, and in Ann Arbor this term, all public schools are going to be online. So uh, parents, and uh, many of whom are grad students, need to have additional childcare because mm -hmm. uh, their children are going to be at home all day, and now they're working from home. So one of the things we were fighting for was for um, the age limit for the childcare subsidy that we have won through our contract negotiation to be raised because it used to apply only to children who were uh, you know, before school age. So if you were a school age child, you wouldn't be eligible for it. But because now you know, nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, whatever, are now gonna be at home, they are gonna yeah. require childcare too. So um, through our labor action, we were able to raise that limit for the length of the pandemic to 15 years old, which was a huge victory for us. Yeah. I'll also add that of course, this childcare issue is a gendered issue. So this affects uh, women graduate students more than male graduate students who are you know, more burdened with uh, the issues of childcare. So that was just one aspect. Um, our policing demands we see as inseparable from our pandemic related demands. So there are two reasons for that. One is that when other, other comparable institutions like the University of Minnesota were ending ties with local law enforcement agencies, the University of Michigan was using the pandemic as an excuse to actually oh. expand cooperation with law enforcement. Um, so they did this through this uh, so-called Michigan Ambassadors Program, where they were essentially empowering community members to act as vigilantes in reporting people who were violating social distance to the police. Um, and through the work of um, some undergraduate groups on campus, uh, uh, the Students of Color Liberation Front, they've actually ended this program because it's just so out of whack with what we know about how uh, the police would handle these issues. Um, I'll also add that the policing demands like the pandemic demands are uh, come out of the knowledge that both the pandemic and racist policing disproportionately affect the most vulnerable members of our community, particularly people of color. What's uh, if I could ask both of you, uh, uh, both professors, uh, what I was what I was sort of teasing before we brought uh, Professor Fleischman up. Uh, what what are, the, what are the when you look back five years from now, eight years from now, uh, you'll have a lot of thoughts, obviously, and a lot of experiences. But what what will you say was gained that might not have otherwise been gained? What 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 were the benefit? You know, what are the one or two benefits that you see? from going through this catastrophe? Professor Williams? Uh, that's hard to answer right now. Um, I, I just think nationwide, I'm still kind of astounded how many people think this whole thing is a hoax or that, you know, gee, 200,000 people, that is uh, no big deal. I hope for our students at least, they maybe gain some kind of sense of responsibility. Uh, they realize that they are interconnected. I mean, all the people who say, well, it's my right to wear a mask or not. 
uh, Notre Dame students I talk to will say, no, it's, you, you have to do it. You have an obligation to other people. Uh, I've seen people say, faculty can get sick, the staff can get sick, and you can shut this university down if you insist on doing the kind of partying that was happening the first week. So I hope that's what will be gained, that people will just kind of maybe appreciate science a little more, at least our students will, and that they'll have a greater sense that, uh, yeah, it's not just all of your individual rights, you know, that other people are affected and possibly affected very seriously uh, by what you do or do not do. Amir, yeah. is, the, is the trade union movement going to be strengthened because of this? Uh, I certainly hope so. Um, so I think what we, the biggest uh, gains for us from this strike um, were one, that the, we actually forced the university to talk to us, to negotiate with us over these policing issues, which they had refused to do before. So that's a big change. Now they've implicitly acknowledged that this is a labor issue. Um, additionally, I'll add that our membership rate right now is the highest it has been since right to work was uh, implemented in Michigan. So our members are fired up and ready to keep fighting for a safer and more just campus. I'll also add that the university's response to the pandemic, uh, while despicable, is also incredibly predictable. And I think what this has shown to many on our campus, uh, be it the graduate students who went on strike to the hundreds of undergrads who are out there with us, uh, including the residence advisors, the RAs who struck themselves, the dining workers who are organizing, and even the faculty who voted no confidence in the president of our university, is that the status quo ante is not acceptable for us anymore. We need a university that is more than just a hedge fund with a sports team and a college yeah. as a side gig. We need a university that cares about our students. And I'm hoping that this will be a real turning point uh, to push back against the trends of the past several decades that have turned the university from a place of learning uh, into just another business. Yeah, I think it's um, really important that you're, you're touching on the budget shortfalls, but I think um, some of the themes that I'm hearing too are like, this is about a community, right? Um, this is about people over um, profits. And so um, there needs to be a significant concern um, when planning to reopen that for the safety of students, for the safety of staff, for the safety of faculty, and then also making sure that, you know, if we are in a virtual space or if we are in an in-person space that people have the resources that they need. So it's not just thinking about like, do you have um, a laptop, right? Or do you have access to Wi-Fi? It's like, do you have childcare, right? Now that we are all in this together. So um, I do want to bring Jennifer back um, and talk a little bit about um, what the future of education looks like. And I, I know Toby started off, um, start well ended our first segment um, with a question about, you know, what, what does the future of education look like, right? Um, so what are, um, is online learning the future of higher education as this pandemic extends? And I'd love to hear what you all um, are talking about um, amongst you know your various um, colleagues at your universities. Um, is this something that we're in you know for the long term? And then what do we need um, from governments, from schools, from the private sector to make this work? Jennifer. 
Well, I think um, to sort of answer that question and maybe one of Toby's about um, what are some of the silver linings, I mean, I think Wake Forest does put a very high premium on face-to-face -face classroom experience. We aren't able to do that for a lot um, of this semester, but we're able to do it where we can. But I think one of the benefits is our faculty really have, um, they've really sort of blossomed in this experience in terms of figuring out what can they do. If they can't be in the classroom, how can they teach and how can they build those relationships with students? And I think they've done an amazing job with it. They're very tired, I will tell you that. But um, you know, I've been talking to some faculty on campus who are sort of excited now that they've learned a lot about what they can do with technology. And some of them have had better relationships with their students through this process because the students are reaching out on a more regular basis because they, even though they can't have the face-to-face -face and eye-to-eye -eye interaction that Chris was talking about earlier, um, they want to have these relationships with faculty members. And so some of them are getting to know their students even better. The other silver lining I'm seeing is our students are, are really resilient. And even though this semester on campus and the semester in DC isn't what they pictured, um, I think they're getting a new sense of confidence that even when it's not what they thought it might be, um, that they can still make the best of it. And I think they're finding new ways um, to interact with their faculty members and their and their fellow students. Professor Williams, what, what about your faculty uh, colleagues? Is, are you pretty upbeat about how they're doing, how they're feeling? Is, how, what's their morale like? I, I, I rarely see any of them in person, so I guess it's a little bit hard to tell. Uh, I think they're feeling better than they did at the, at the peak of the crisis. Um, so we haven't had to cancel uh, to, or go online completely. Um, you know, as far as, you know, I can never see Notre Dame being an all online or primarily online university. It's, there, there is a great value of being here face-to-face, uh, uh, -face. but I think we might be more open to what online can do. Uh, I, I'm quite pleased with my classes. I'm all online, and I am talking to my students more than ever. Uh, mm. It helps not having small children. I, I have no social life. But you know, I, I've talked to students at nine o'clock at night. I talk to them on weekends. Um, it's just really convenient when you don't have to make this big trip to your office for what may prove to be a five minute meeting. I've had guest lectures come in. Uh, I've attended conferences that I would never have been able to attend if I insisted on going in person. And it's just nicer to go in person, but it's nicer to be online as to not be there at all. So I have a feeling that at Notre Dame, at least, this will not be the end of online. We're, we're, we'll take out the best aspects of it, or at least some people will take out the, the good aspects of it, and they'll try to keep on using them. If nothing else, I think meeting people online uh, has a lot to be said for it. But you know, as far as morale, I don't, I don't know that anybody's real thrilled with the way the world is right now. I mean, you know, I, I get to be all online, but I still get bored. You know, I, I'd like to see something other than pictures of people. Um, so, but I, I think we're, I think most people are probably coping okay. The point that was made about childcare earlier. Um, I think, you know, th there are times when I miss having small children during a pandemic is not one of them. I think it would be a nightmare dealing with a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old right now. My, my daughter is in graduate school, 
and she has to help manage all these kids. And I, I can't imagine what it's like for the faculty with small kids who are teaching. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, going back to your first speaker, I, I hope we can get the littler kids uh, back in school at least, because uh, it really is a tremendous burden. Uh, I hope we can get them back safely because it is a tremendous burden on working parents to have children at home. Well, yeah, going back to our first uh, uh, guest, Chris Wiley, the high school teacher from Reynolds. I mean, if I were if I were in your shoes, Jennifer, Professor Williams, I would I might be a little concerned about the people that are going to be delivered to me, or won't show up at all, or or will be you know not as well educated or developed as they would have been because of this, of this crisis. Uh, you know, we, don't, we don't know that, but one can surmise, surmise from what Chris Wiley said about a lot of these young people falling back, you know. The, the, the four-year college university was not exactly sacrosanct before this crisis. I mean, there were, there were a lot of discussions that you're more familiar with than we are because of where you, where you sit and where your expertise is about what are we doing here? What's with all this bricks and mortar? What are we educating people for? Um, is that is that kind of question of the the bricks and mortar in classroom four year college going to be uh, intensified because of this? I think. I mean, I may be wrong. I think we're going to survive no matter what. I mean, people are going to want to come to Notre Dame. Um, but there's a lot of colleges going bankrupt. There may be a lot of people now saying, wait, I can get a pretty decent education and yeah. not, not leave my house. I mean, you know, the top 25, top 100 universities, I imagine there's going to be demand for residential education in, in those places in spite of everything. When you go to the thousand universities below that in the rankings, um, I'm not sure, so sure what will happen with them. Um, I, I, I'm going to retire soon, so it won't affect me much uh, either way. But, uh, I, I just have a feeling we're going to come out of this okay. Wake Forest will probably come out of it okay. Harvard's going to come out of it okay. I'm just not sure about a lot of those smaller uh, junior colleges and re regional colleges. Uh, a lot of them are taking a huge financial pit right now. And, have to see what happens to them. Yeah, I, I'd say I would, I would agree with that. I think the demand's still going to be there. I think this now intensifies our need to make sure that we're that we are um, that we are continuing to increase diversity on campus, and it becomes a little bit harder because of some of the challenges, Toby, that you just mentioned, and and where people are coming from in their education, and what these years of the pandemic do to that. And so, I think Wake Forest is just going to have to put even more effort into fundraising in a way that allows us to bring um, a diverse student body to campus, which may be a little harder now. And it may and it may impact our, you know, all, all of our international students certainly are impacted right now. We don't know for how long that's going to continue um, to be an issue with students yeah. not being able to come to campus. And, and big financial aid issues. I mean, I don't know the actual numbers, but Notre Dame said our income is going to be down. Our need for financial aid is going to be greater. Um, so, you know, that, that may make it harder uh, for people to get to the Notre Dames or the Wake Forest, you know, we, we don't want to just be the super rich. Um, 
But um, it's going to be harder and harder to afford us for some people. And we may have less and less ability to help them. At least that's the fear. So we have a couple of questions from um, our audience. So the first one is um, lots of lots has been written about gaps in education, especially technologically. How can universities ensure that those gaps for students are being shrunk so that education is accessible for everyone? Uh, well, well, I'll try it if no one else wants it. Um, I, I was I was actually really impressed with Notre Dame back in March, more so than I have been uh, uh, this semester. But uh, they went and you know sent all the students home, and if they didn't have internet, they bought them internet connections. And you know I, I had this one student, great student, one of my best students, but the family did not have internet. Uh, Notre Dame bought them like three or four months. Uh, but there's so many other places that uh, you know, I worry actually more. Well, I worry a lot for grade school children, uh, poor children, uh, people in, in uh, rural areas. I, I understand that mm -hmm. it's a huge problem. Internet access is a huge problem. I don't think our students have that much of a problem, but I know that, you know, I mean, our students are pretty well off, so it's less problematic for them. And Notre Dame did help those who needed help. Well, and I would say certainly in the pandemic, I think I think Wake Forest um, faculty were trying to be as as accommodating as they could for the students that did have struggles. From everything from what Chris was saying earlier, with having siblings that were that were at home that they were then asked to you know help take care of, to people who were in different time zones that made it difficult for them to participate, and they were just they were very accommodating. To do that on a grander scale is harder, but certainly it's something that that we have to think about. I will say for Washington D.C. and our program and terms of non-pandemic times and and now our goal is that there's that any student that's at Wake Forest can come through this program without it being an additional financial burden on them so we we make sure that they are not it, everything down to paying for their metro cards to making sure that they have the financial means to fly here if they need to fly here um, we make sure it's it's a sort of even playing field that it won't cost them additional funds in order to be here and we try to do the same thing with with students who want to study abroad because you know, so high percentage of Wake Forest students study abroad, um, and it is, as many people know, a life-changing experience. We want to make sure that all of our students, regardless of their financial circumstances, are able to do that. Um, another question that we have is uh, testing. So I assume this means COVID testing um, has become a financial concern for universities. Um, schools that have the funding to constantly test students do so, but those that are in a tough financial situation, um, which many schools are, have not tested on a mass scale. Should testing take priority over financial concerns? And should the government help? You can go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can speak about, I mean, obviously, and again, we have the financial resources where there are certainly things that we're not able to do because we're doing testing. And I will say we're putting testing pretty high up in our priorities. So we're doing a random, random testing now. Um, and, and that's been very important for us in order to keep it safe. And we're, you know, that's how we have this dashboard and know exactly how many cases we have at any given moment based on testing. Um, and and I, I do think it has to be a priority, but it is, it is a, that is a challenge for, for um, schools and universities that don't have those financial resources to be able to do that. I wonder if we could ask our uh, producer, Olivia, if Amir 
uh, Fleischman, if Professor Fleischman is still with us, if we could get him back to uh, respond to the question about testing. It was something that I wanted to hear his uh, what his what his uh, organization, his union's position has been on testing. And I believe um, Chris had a response as well. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, so testing. You want to start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so testing was one of our key demands uh, in our campaign. Um, so the University of Michigan right now is not doing any in asymptomatic testing of asymptomatic individuals, uh, which we believe is a huge mistake. Um, I am sensitive to what was said earlier about uh, financial priorities for different universities. Um, and if the University of Michigan didn't have uh, one of the largest endowments in the world, I would say maybe it should shift to all online and not have to worry as much about testing. But that just isn't the case. The University of Michigan has $6.7 billion in unrestricted reserves in its endowment. It can definitely afford to have a more robust testing policy. The administration is choosing not to do that. Um, and I think that says a lot about where their priorities are. Who is getting the best testing? The football players. Not the bus drivers, not the nurses. Chris Wiley uh, was with us at the beginning of the show and is a public school teacher at Reynolds High School in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Chris, did you have something to say? Uh, I did. I, um, when asked about, um, the, the question was on the stage about uh, access to, um, to devices and things of that nature. I think what's sort of been shown um, as something of a liability for uh, public schools in a way that it's not for universities, um, but at that K-12 level, um, I think we've already moved to a spot where um, online connectivity is should be treated much more like a public utility, just as much as water, or it'd be unthinkable to have, you know, not have water electricity coming into a home. And it is at a, you know, beyond the point where, you know, access to the internet, you know, to go to school, to, uh, to, to, to work a job, to, to, to just connect with the rest of the world, so to speak, um, that, that, that we're past due uh, for making that a, a public priority. So I think that has been exposed pretty clearly. And I would, I, I'd love to see that in somebody's talking point, somebody who wants, you know, my vote should put that in, in there. <laughs> uh, Thanks. That's great. Um, so I believe we have time for maybe one more question. Um, so someone asked about um, activities such as football. Um, so Mary, you started raising that a bit. Um, so some schools are prioritizing activities like that over in-person voting. Often universities are a place or, or holds sort of space for, um, for students to vote. So um, what do you think about this type of um, decision? Especially since you're in a Big Ten school. Yeah, so that seems uh, sort of like an incorrect priority for, to me anyway. Um, I would say that the university has rightfully been encouraging people to vote absentee. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Certainly uh, our parent union, uh, the American Federation of Teachers, is encouraging that as well. Um, I think one interesting campaign that has started at the University of Michigan, um, led by students, undergraduate and graduate, uh, is to have the day off on election day um, so that people can vote and more than vote, volunteer in 
either at the polling stations themselves or and get out the vote efforts for their favorite candidates. So I hope the universities um, and schools generally are putting some thought into the, how they figure into the democratic process. That's helpful. And I think Professor Williams might have a response to that. Uh, yes, there I am. Um, <clears throat> yeah, as luck would have it, <clears throat> We're supposed to be playing Wake Forest this That's Saturday, right. and we had 13 players test positive in the last That's few days, right. so now the game's been postponed to December 12th, um, so I guess we dodged a bullet momentarily or something, but I, what the, I, I've said it only half-jokingly. Um, I could see having football if most of the students weren't on campus. And if, if most of the students are on campus, not having it, but having both at the same time worries me. And yeah. what really worries me, I, first off, there are concerns about the football players, but I'm actually more worried about the student body. And on, on November 7th, at least according to the current schedule, Notre Dame plays number one Clemson. At this point, both teams would probably be favored to be undefeated at that time. So that's the game national championship implications. Mm -hmm. Classes end five days later, everybody's off campus within a couple of weeks. Now, I'm just really worried that, yeah, maybe we have been really well behaved and everything's been going great. But if we win a de facto national championship game, what is that going to do to discipline on campus? I mean, if we win that game, it would be the biggest win since we beat number one Florida State back in 1993. So I'm just very nervous about this. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and then think we're leaving two weeks. Everybody's gone two weeks after that game. You know, how are you gonna get all these tested? Uh, are we gonna be sending a bunch of people home that are carrying COVID with them? Right. I mean, you think yeah. it's just gonna be super important to maintain super discipline those last two weeks. And I really wish we were playing, if we're going to play number one Clemson, I'd rather it be in a week or two. I really dislike it being yeah. right before right class. Before. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I guess we're just about out of time, but you, you mentioned uh, another date in November. We we're, Our show is, is November 4th. You mentioned the 7th. Uh, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question since we don't really have time for the answer and I'd be putting you on the spot anyway to ask you a question like this. But for all three teachers, professors, we started this show, at least in the first or second show months ago, with Professor Lawrence Douglas as he uh, unveiled his book called Will He Go? And the book is based on uh, Professor Douglas's research and worries that we don't have constitutional and statutory um, guidelines, rules, laws, regulations that guarantee that uh, a president leaves if in fact you can muddy the waters with the electoral college and so forth. In recent days, this has become even more of an issue. And I think uh, uh, if I were uh, the head of the faculty for e any of your schools, I would be asking all three of you to prepare your lesson plans for November 4th and 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, uh, because you're not going to find in, in all likelihood any of it in a textbook. So I, I think we'll, uh, 
we'll leave you all with that. And, and thanks so much for, for joining us. You were just such a great panel. And Jennifer, who's not on screen right now, uh, thank you so much from the Wake in Washington program. We'll see you all next time.